The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist, a political analyst for WGN-TV and radio in Chicago, and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C. You can read my take on the presidential race in The Hill every Monday, Just Google muckrack, that's all one word, M-U-C-K-R-A-C-K, dot com, front slash, Brad, dash Bannon. My new contribution to the Hill is my take on tomorrow's Democratic presidential debate, which we'll discuss today on the show. This debate will be the last discussion before the Iowa caucuses and the first since the new wave of conflict with Iran. My company, Bannon Communications Research, pulls for and designs research-based media and message strategies for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling and communications company, go to Facebook. The address is facebook.com front slash Bannon dash communications dash research. My Twitter handle is Brad Bannon, all one word. Today we'll preview tomorrow's Democratic presidential today we'll preview tomorrow's Democratic presidential debate. Our guest in the first half hour is Sean Zeller, the deputy editor of CQ magazine. Our guest in the second half hour on our provocative progressive political panel are Kim Scott, publisher of Demlist, and our own executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. If you want to be part of the show and talk directly to me and our guest, call us at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. These are the questions that we'll discuss today on the show. Inquiring minds want to know... Should foreign policy be the hot topic tomorrow night at the Democratic debate in the wake of the Iran crisis, or should health care dominate discussion the way it did in the previous debates? Four Democratic candidates, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and former Mayor Pete uh, are bunched at the top of the Iowa polls. Will one of them break out tomorrow night, or are we looking at a tight, way, tight four-way finish in the Hawkeye caucuses? Do Amy Globuchar, Tom Steyer, Michael Bloomberg, or any of the other candidates still have a, have a shot at the Democratic nomination? Okay, we're back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our first guest in the our guest in the first half hour is uh, a frequent contributor, 
uh, Sean Zella, who is the deputy editor of Congressional Quarterly Magazine. Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Brad. It's always a pleasure, Sean. You want to wear frequent flyers. Uh, let's start with this. Uh, in the past uh, six Democratic uh, debates, uh, health care has been the big topic of discussion. And my question to you is, uh, do you think there will be uh, more of an emphasis on foreign policy tomorrow night uh, since this is uh, the first debate since uh, tensions have risen between the United States and Iran? Uh, sure, certainly, yes, I think. Although it seems as though those tensions are ratcheting down a bit, hopefully, uh, since the initial killing of General Soleimani uh, on January 2nd, uh, it's still a big issue. The House just voted at the end of last week on a resolution that would require President Trump to go to Congress if he wants to attack Iran again. Now, that's not going to pass in the Senate and not certainly not going to get Trump's signature, so it's not ever going to have the force of law. But it's an indication that Democrats, and, and indeed some Republicans, a small minority of Republicans, feel like Congress needs to step up and grab back some of the power it's ceded to the presidents over the years in terms of war making. Now, um, I haven't got uh, any requests for input from the moderators of uh, tomorrow's debate, uh, but... Um, and I suspect I'll keep checking for my email and not find any anyway. But uh, if I was asking questions uh, tomorrow night, um, I would ask the candidates, uh, was it appropriate or constitutional uh, for the president to um, uh, order the attack on General Soleimani uh, without congressional approval or even consultation? Uh, what do you think? It's a good question. I mean, the the attack was uh, justified on the grounds of the uh, resolution that Congress offered before the beginning of the Iraq War, which began in 2003. The Congress passed the resolution in 2002. And a lot of the lawmakers who are still around from that time say they never could have imagined that it would have been used uh, to justify the attack on an Iranian military official in Iraq, and really nothing to do with the Iraq of Saddam Hussein and the the invasion of Iraq that followed. Okay. Uh, the administration has... Uh, how good a case has the Trump administration uh, made that there was... Uh, it was an urge, there was an urgent need uh, to mount the attack against General Soleimani uh, because of imminent threats uh, he posed to the United States. Right. That's what they've said, that there were imminent threats. Um, but they haven't made a very good case. Those who've heard the case, uh, lawmakers who got a briefing last week from the CIA and the Defense Department, uh, were not satisfied. And I think the most telling was Senator Mike Lee, who's a Republican from Utah, who was really upset um, about the explanation given by the administration. And, you know, he was pressing the issue, like, at what point 
do you feel you would have to come back to Congress to ask for authorization? And they weren't willing to basically say that any that they would ever need to go back to Congress to ask for authorization. So he's one of those few Republicans who is concerned about this extension of really broad authority that presidents have taken in terms of attacking foreign government, foreign countries, foreign officials. Um, and there were a few in the House, too, who voted for that resolution uh, asking Congress to uh, – asking the administration to come back to Congress for further authorization. You know, actually, Sean, that's the question I would like uh, – the moderators to ask the Democrat uh, Democratic presidential candidates tonight: At what point do you have to take, get congressional authorization uh, to mount uh, an attack that might uh, involve the United States uh, in a war? And I uh, hope one of the moderators does ask that question last night because I think that's really the important issue here is what point uh, constitutionally does the president have to go uh, to Congress? In this case, um, apparently, uh, not only did the Trump administration not seek congressional approval, uh, they didn't even notify Congress of the attack. Um, So um, I hope that is explored fully tomorrow night. We're going to go to break now, uh, but when we get back from our break, we'll have more of Deadline DC uh, with Brad Bannon. Uh, we will have more with our guest in the first half hour, Sean Zeller, uh, deputy editor of Congressional Quarterly Magazine. We'll be back in a minute. As you, I hope, know, Iran launched a dozen ballistic missiles at two military bases in Iraq where American soldiers were. There were no casualties, thank God. There was talk the president might address the nation last night, as leaders typically do in times like these. Instead, he went on Twitter and wrote, all is well. (laughs) All is well. (laughs) All is not well. You're not even well, okay? But go on. Missiles launched from Iran at two military bases located in Iraq. Assessment of casualties and damages taking place now. So far, so good. (laughs) It's like that joke about the guy who jumped off the skyscraper. You know that joke where as he's passing the 18th floor, someone yells out the window, how's it going? And he yells back, so far, so good. (laughs) All is well and so far, so good are not statements from a president after a strike on U.S. forces. They're the messages... Written on candy hearts for Valentine's Day. When it came time to say words, the president stayed on script. He delivered a prepared statement to both Iran and the world. The civilized world must send a clear and unified message to the Iranian regime. Your campaign of terror, murder, mayhem will not be tolerated any longer. (laughs) Will not tolerate any more of your shenanigans. That's it. He really nailed this speech and, of course, uh, took some time out of it to a compliment himself. Our economy is stronger than ever before and America has achieved energy independence. These historic accomplishments change our strategic priorities. (laughs) I think he needs to be rebooted or something, right? He just so desperately needs praise. I've never seen anything like it. If he can't get people to kiss his ass, he stretches back and just starts kissing it himself. (laughs) 
this is when the fact that Donald Trump has his finger on the nuclear button becomes a real concern. Up until now, the only wars he was ever involved in were with Bette Midler and Cher. This is real. And hopefully that was it for military retaliation. But the other thing we now have to worry about is an Iranian cyber attack. Authorities say Americans should be on heightened alert for a cyber attack. <laughs> How? What do I... Should I unplug my computer? What does that mean? <laughs> do I hide under my desk? What do, I need more information. And aren't we already under cyber attack from the president's Twitter account every day? <laughs> okay, thanks to the late-night comedians. I don't know what we do without them during Donald Trump's administration. Uh, by the way, uh, I hope for the president's sake that he doesn't choose all as well for his re-election campaign slogan because only about 35 percent of Americans, according to the polls, think the country's headed in the right direction. Our guest in this half hour is Sean Zeller, uh, the uh, deputy editor of Congressional Quarterly magazine. Uh, Let me uh, ask you this, uh, Sean. We had some uh, presidential campaign news this morning. Uh, Senator Cory Booker uh, announced that he was dropping out of the presidential race. He wasn't going to qualify for the uh, debate tomorrow night. Uh, One of the surprises to me of this campaign is we had two very credible uh, black Democratic presidential candidates, Senators uh, Kamala Harris and uh, Senator Booker, and neither one of them took off. Uh, Why do you think uh, neither of them took off? Um, Well, I'm of the opinion that it's it's about the candidates. I know there's been a lot of uh, fretting among Democrats about the failure of people of color in the candidate mix to advance in the in the debates. Uh, of course, Andrew Yang's uh, still in the race. He didn't make the, this debate, but he's made all of the past ones. Um, Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, is still in the race, although not in the debate. Um, but I think this is the party that uh, just just uh, recently elected Barack Obama twice uh, as president, nominated him twice, and he was elected twice. So I think it's a little too simplistic to say it's a, it's a, a racist electorate or something like that. Um, I think in this case that the message from the two candidates just did not take off. I mean, Booker was running on a campaign of conciliation. He talked about love a lot. And I think uh, the mood of the primary electorate is just uh, too angry for the message that that he was uh, putting out there. Uh, The Washington Post released a national poll Friday of African-American Democratic primary voters, and they found that uh, Joe Biden was dominating the field. Uh, he and, had, and I believe. Right. I mean, that's another that's an, another important factor here is that um, Biden. I think uh, it would t- it would take a lot of support from black African American primary voters to advance one of the candidates, Booker or Harris. But Biden has had that locked up, and perhaps that's a result of his his eight years of service with Barack Obama. Perhaps it's uh, the uh, fact that. The African-American base of the Democratic Party is more moderate than the progressive side of the the party. Perhaps it's that 
um, they think he has the best chance to win, and they really want to beat Donald Trump. But certainly Biden's popularity among people of color has hurt, uh, hurt Harris and Booker. Okay. Uh, the uh, most recent Iowa poll show essentially that we've got uh, four candidates uh, bunched up at the top of the leaderboard. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, uh, and former Mayor Pete. Uh, they're within five points of each other uh, in the most recent CNN Des Moines Register poll. Uh, is that what you think will uh, end up? Is there any room for any of the other candidates uh, to make a showing on the Iowa caucuses? Or are we going to have, uh, is it this four that we're going to basically be dealing with uh, from between now and the caucuses on February 3rd? Well, they're running out of time, certainly. Amy Klobuchar um, uh, is running out of time to, to resonate in the early states, for example. Um, and I think what's interesting is Sanders, uh, his resiliency after his heart attack to be again leading the poll in Iowa, that's uh, pretty remarkable and an indication that he's going to be formidable. Uh, that he just has a really loyal and strong base of support. He he motivates young people, interestingly, being one of the most the old, el- eldest candidates in the race, um, who could be a very important factor in the early primaries. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be really interesting. I mean, you could have the first three primaries go to three different candidates, in which case, um, you know, it opens up the question then could uh, Mike Bloomberg his strategy of working on the other primaries, which are bunched up quickly after the first three, could he get into the mix? Um, could we'll we find have out a convention? soon. Yeah. Uh, Sean, thanks very much for joining us today. Our guest in the first half hour was a good friend of the show, Sean Zella, the deputy editor of Congressional Quarterly Magazine. We'll be back with more of Deadline D.C. and our progress- provocative progressive political panel after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. The seventh Democratic presidential debate is the last session before Iowa Democrats caucus to select a presidential nominee. And the first debate since the start of a new level of military confrontation between the United States and Iran. The timing requires a serious and thorough discussion of national security policy, which has gotten short shift in the previous debates. The dominant issue in the first six debates has been health care. Foreign policy and health care are at the polar ends of the issue agenda in the 2020 campaign. There is a great deal of voter concern about remedies for dealing with the health care crisis facing Americans, but little concern with national security policy. But national security deserves its place in the sun in the seventh and in all of the subsequent Democratic debates, because the next president will have much more flexibility to address international issues than he or she will have in dealing with health care reform. The next president will have to work very closely with Congress to get any kind of health care reform. Uh, 
but the president has a great deal of flexibility to act unilaterally to deal with threats from other countries. The president's unchecked power to act internationally is at center stage now because of the most recent confrontation between the United States and Iran. Many have said that it's a lot easier to start a war than it is to end one. Donald Trump might have just started a war with Iran, and it's my guess he has no clue how to end it. This from the presidential candidate who promised an end to the perpetual wars in the Middle East. The U.S. strike against General Soleimani, the commander of the Quds Group in the Iranian National Guard, illustrates a troublesome trend in American national security policy, which is the power the presidents possess to attack other nations without congressional approval or even any consultation. Since the end of World War II, every president has committed American military forces to foreign conflicts without a congressional declaration of war. This unilateral power to fight wars and risk the lives of brave young Americans is not what the Founding Fathers intended. Our Founding Fathers fought a war for independence so they understood the human conflicts, of, the human cost of conflict. Because they lived through the horrors of war, they created a system that made it difficult to start one. The founders gave Congress, the representatives of the people, not the president, the power to declare or start a war. They made the president commander-in-chief of the armed forces with the power to direct the war only after Congress has decided to fight one. Presidents need some flexibility in a contentious and wired world, but the balance, but the president's power to start a war with congressional, without congressional approval has got seriously out of whack. Today in our prog- provocative progressive political panel, uh, we have two guests. Uh, Kimberly Scott is the publisher of Demlist, a daily political column dedicated, dedicated to educating and informing the public about issues and events. You can sign up for the column, and I'd advise you to do so uh, for your own edification, at www.demlist.com. That's www.demlist.com on Facebook or Twitter at uh, the Dem List. Joining Kim on the panel is our own executive producer and progressive political activist, Mark Grimaldi. Mark, let's uh, start with you. Uh, we've got uh, four Democratic presidential candidates uh, bunched up at the top of the leaderboard uh, in the recent Iowa caucus polls. Uh, they are, of course, uh, Bernie Sanders. Uh, Joe Biden, former Mayor Pete, uh, and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren are one of those. Are, we, are those the four candidates that we're going to see at the top of the uh, uh, mountain on the night of the caucus, February third, or will some one of the other candidates be able to sneak in there, Mark? I uh, twofold. I'll kind of give you an answer, Brad. First, I I don't think so, just because of how consistently um, uh, these four have showed up at the top of the polls. You know, Mayor Pete being 
the most recent addition, but that was in you know the political world quite some time ago, uh, and he's even led some of the Iowa polls uh, not that long ago. So I don't really see him fading. Um, and the other three candidates you mentioned, Vice President Biden and Senators Sanders and Warren, uh, have pulled near the top as well. So I think that those are going to be your top four, and I do think they'll be closely bunched. I think anybody who tells you that you know they know who's going to win or it's you know pretty obvious i think is mistaken um also i will say though that if someone was to break in i think personally that it would be senator klobuchar after um i know we talked about this on air brad but after getting to speak with her in person and seeing um each one of those uh, candidates uh, minus Senator Warren as she had a scheduling conflict but talk at that Teamsters event I talked to you about um, last month in Cedar Rapids, Iowa um, all of them had a great command of the the stage and I think communicated well with um, you know the audience which were Teamsters, you know blue collar workers in Iowa um, but I also found that Senator Klobuchar as watching her you know throughout the debates most um, specifically, I'm thinking of the last debate, which I thought was her strongest. Um, she really seems to engage voters very well. I think for those, she kind of checks some boxes that some of the other candidates don't. So if you look at it from the stance of electability, okay, or, or who matches up well against um Trump in a general election. She really checks a lot of boxes. She's won multiple national races. She connects well with Midwestern voters. For those who are concerned about how progressive some of Senator Warren, Senator Sanders' policies are. Um, she offers some of the same moderate views that Vice President Biden and Mayor Buttigieg offer. However, she um, is a female candidate, which I think many Democrats um, have said, you know, they, they'd love to see a woman at the, the top of the ticket, um, especially with uh, the, the huge numbers that um, women have shown up and exercise their right to vote and really carry Democrats the last few elections. Um, I think it would be excellent to to have a woman at the top of the ticket. And I also think she's just really well-versed on every single issue she's talked about. Um, she has these well-thought-out policy positions, but there's a way that she seems to explain it to voters without sounding overly wonky. And she just doesn't seem to be afraid of, of Trump, not that anyone else comes across as afraid of him. But she just seems like she's a no-nonsense, won't-take-any-crap type of candidate, and, and I think she would perform well on a national level. Now, that said, she's been in the race this long, and she hasn't been able to break into that top four in Iowa, so that's why I do think it would be difficult. However, if she came out on top of this most recent debate, that would be stringing together two very good debates in a row right before the caucuses. So that's why I would say if, so, if it was to be someone, I would, I would put my money on her if I was a betting man. Uh, Kim, what do you think? Do you think uh, one of the candidates uh, like uh, Senator Globachar or Tom Steyer or Michael Bloomberg could break through? Or are we uh, pretty much stuck with the big four? I think if there is an opportunity, it's Klobuchar's. Um, she, I agree with Mark that she checks a lot of boxes, others don't. She did very well in the last debate, and she got a boost from it. Um, her... Her fundraising numbers in the last quarter more than doubled what she had uh, raised before. But the question is whether it's Klobuchar or, 
Yang, Steyer, and Gabbard, <clears throat> whether they can break through to um, that next tier in the national polls of, you know, they are all having some presence in the early state polls. I think, you know, Globachar has said has gotten some boost there. Um, but then you also have the case of, like, Pete Buttigieg, um, you know, Mayor Pete, who continues to be in one of the top four in fundraising, but um, and is, is doing very well in early state polls, but he's still not breaking through in the national polls. Um, uh, which brings well, us back to the four. You know, you have, of course, Bernie Sanders. I mean, he's still one of the four, but uh, particularly after the last quarter of fundraising again, in the Bernie Sanders topped out the field uh, once again is the, the highest raiser at 30 point. Uh, $34.5 million, but Mayor Pete was second with 24.7. You know, then Biden, um, Elizabeth Warren slipped behind a little bit in this last time from down from $24.6 million in the third quarter to $21.2 in the fourth. Uh, but they are still all holding their own in the national polls. Well, let's uh, let me ask you this. Let's say, for the sake of argument, uh, that there's still some wiggle room in Iowa, and let's say that uh, Senator Senator Globuchar, uh does finish strongly in Iowa. Uh, is that enough uh, to uh, jumpstart her campaign well enough where all of a sudden she becomes a player in New Hampshire and nationally? Or you could ask them make the same argument for Tom Steyer or, or even Michael Bloomberg, I guess. Well, Steyer barely qualified for this last uh, debate. And, you know, he has got the, the problem of being a billionaire um, and one of two, obviously, in this race. Bloomberg doesn't qualify for the debates because he's taking his own money. Um, but, yes, a strong showing in Iowa, as has been demonstrated in past elections, can boost a candidate or also kill a candidate's chances. Biden must do well in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, well, we'll find out soon if he does. Uh, we're going to go to break now, but we uh, get back from break. We will have more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and our provocative political, uh, progressive political panel uh, with uh, Kimberly Scott, the publisher of Demlist, and our own executive producer and progressive political activist, Mark Grimaldi. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we're back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon and our pro- provocative progressive political panel. Today on the panel, uh, we have uh, Kimberly Scott, who is the publisher of Demlist, and our own executive producer, uh, Mark Grimaldi. Uh, let me say that I think the Democratic National Committee has a thankless job of determining who is going to be on these uh, debate uh, uh, stages, uh, and they've had to make some tough decisions. Uh, now, the panel will have tomorrow night, which consists of uh, 
uh, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, former Mayor Pete, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Tom Steyer, and Senator uh, Amy Globuchar. Uh, there will not be uh, a candidate um, of color on the panel tomorrow night. Uh, also, uh, earlier today, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey announced uh, he was getting out of the race. Now, I like Tom T- Steyer. Um, I could easily, you know, vote for him. Um but it bothers me a little bit that he was able to uh, spend, well, Kim can tell us exactly how much he spent, uh, and somebody like Cory Booker, who didn't have the, enough money uh, to make a presence, um, didn't make the panel, um, is, well, let me put it, my question is, uh, Mark, let me ask you first, uh, is... Does the fact that somebody like Tom Steyer could spend a gazillion dollars, Kim? How much money did he spend? Um, he has spent forty-seven million. Yeah, uh, uh, which is a ridiculous amount of money, but it did make one point five of that court. was raised to small donors. And this was in the in the last four and forty-five point five million of his own personal funds in the last quarter. And that's so is the deep, problem you go have ahead, with go ahead. you know Steyer Bloomberg. Um, who can spend the money um, to get traction. Can they take it all the way? I don't know. But do we want the face of white male billionaire to be the face of the Democratic Party? And that's probably what you're asking. Yeah, yes, it is, actually. Is it fair to Cory Booker? Sorry, was Mark going to... Oh, I didn't know if you were asking oh. me or Kim. Sorry, go ahead, Brad. Yeah. Uh, go, go ahead, Kim. Do you think this, this process is fair to Cory Booker and it's too dependent on somebody, a millionaire like Tom Steyer or Michael Bloomberg, raising, uh, spending a ton of their own money? Well, we can't limit that. That's free speech. If it's fair to others, that's a difficult question. As you said, you know, how does the Democratic Party make this as fair as possible um, and try to be inclusive um, for exactly the constituency that, that they represent? I think that they uh, make great strides in putting in thresholds for the first time ever in history of both fundraising and polling uh, to, to try to to determine what kind of actual grassroots sports there there is, not just in the numbers in states and nationalists, but also nationally, but also in requiring that, for instance, in this debate, that there are 225,000 unique donors and 1,000 unique donors per state unless 20 states. It's a, it's a difficult task to try to interpret money into support. It's what every candidate wants to do and what's, what's Mr. Steyer, Mr. Bloomberg is trying to do. Um, but there are just only so many things that you can do to try to make that fair officially. In the bottom line, it comes up to the voters. I would much rather see it was, you know, it's a hardship, to, um, heartache to see that Bill Castro dropped out in the last month, Booker dropped out today, Marianne Williamson also dropped out. But aside from the candidates who made the stage, there are no minorities. Um, you're talking about Michael Bennett, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, Deval Patrick, and, well, excuse me, and, of course, Andrew Yang. 
Um, but Andrew Rang- Yang represents the last remaining minority face in this field. Uh, Mark, you want to weigh in on this, uh, the issue of Tom Steyer's money and the failure of uh, any minority candidate to make the debate stage tomorrow night? It deeply bothers me because the Democratic Party is a party of a, a very large tent of the party of people of color, the party of um you know, just having uh, all different races and and sexual orientations. It's just the party of openness, not just in in the percentages of people who vote for Democrats, but also in their policy positions versus Republicans. So it bothers me that that's the case, and it, that it's because of money, because that's also a big problem. Which is, you know, the Democratic Party uh, is deeply against the Citizens United decision, which opened up this uh, wave of money that can be spent as free speech saying that people are or corporations are people as Mitt Romney infamously said in his election uh, campaign against President Obama um, and I that's that's emblematic of, of that decision it's just another thing that it's led to and now it's bleeding all the way into the 2020 de- Democratic primary um, I do agree with Kim that I think credit is due that the process has been improved but I think the fact that you have two white billionaires that are still in the race outspending their rivals 10 to 1, but you have Kamala Harris, Julian Castro, and Cory Booker not in the race. It's, that's as clear as day that it's still a problem. Uh, yeah, it is. Well, the question is, what do you do about it? Well, I think that's I mean, a very good question. Kim, I know you are very familiar with the process. Do you have any suggestions you think would be effective? Well, I was- I, I'm following exactly on your thoughts. No, I, mean, I think the party has done what they can do, but I think ultimately, aside from the votes themselves, that uh, campaign, campaign finance reform is is the only thing that uh, can fur, further attempt to level the playing field. Um, it's, as you said, Citizens United, the Supreme Court decision, took the caps off of all money, money ruling that Companies and people were all and had their individual uh, voice that, that is a matter of free speech. Um, but at the same time, it created a monster. I mean, it, campaign finance reform is absolutely necessary, and I think the only step that will correct this process. Okay. Uh, I want to thank both our panelists, uh, Kim Scott, the publisher of Demlist, and executive producer Mark Grimaldi for uh, appearing on the uh, Provocative Progressive Political Panel. Uh, But that's all, sadly, we have for today, folks. Make sure you watch the Democratic debate tomorrow night, and let's hope they talk about uh, presidential war powers, because I think it's a key issue. Uh, Thanks to my guest, uh, Sean Zeller of Congressional Quarterly Magazine, uh, Kimberly Scott of Demlist and executive producer Mark Grimaldi. I'm here every Monday at 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time if the Lord is willing and the creek don't rise. Unless, of course, Donald Trump declares martial law. Have a good week, and I'll uh, be back with you next Monday at 3 o'clock Eastern Time. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. 
Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love. 